Hey everyone, I'm Brianna Mazzolini Blanchard. And I'm Homer Shadowheart. And you're listening to Life on the Margins, an Urban Native Experience. This podcast deals with issues facing the Indigenous community and other marginalized communities in all of our lives. In this episode, our pilot episode, live from the Cincinnati Playhouse, we have a conversation with our guests about what it's like working in white spaces as marginalized community members. You know, we really get into topics such as microaggressions and then really start to have a conversation around empowering ourselves and and decolonizing the workspace. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did. All right, let's get into it. How's everyone doing? Tired. This space is beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for our first live recording of our podcast episode. Um, I want to spend some time kind of introducing the both of you. So if you want to take a few minutes, maybe Sammy, do you want to start? Yeah. Um, Name is Sammy. Um, I work at a museum here in town, uh, Cincinnati Museum Center. Um, I actually uh, went to a... um, HBCU for my undergrad, and I graduated from uh, Northern Kentucky University uh, with public history. Hmm. And I am Tala. Uh, I pretty much grew up in Cincinnati. I'm the daughter of a, uh, my father is uh, Bedouin, uh, Jordanian, and my mother is Palestinian, uh, born and raised in the city of Nablus up until Uh, Her family was cleansed out um, in 1967, Uh, been in Cincinnati, like I said, Uh, went to, through Cincinnati public schools and then ended up at various institutions and ended up graduating from uh, Xavier University, a white privileged institution. Um, I'll stop there. Thank you both so much. my name is Bri, Brianna. Um, I am one of the hosts here with Homer. Um, I am Native Chamorro. I work with the Urban Native Collective. Um, I've lived in Cincinnati since I was about 18 years old, went to university here as well. Live here with my wonderful partner and six-year-old, and um, there's a whole lot more about myself that I could share. I'm currently working for a native, Native-led organization, but previously spent all of my career life working for white-led organizations and and businesses. And my name is Homer. Um, I grew up actually in Northern Kentucky, a very small town of about 500 people. Um, Went to college in Los Angeles, uh, huge difference, culture shock. Uh, Spent most of my adult life though working as a paralegal, uh, mainly for attorneys in definite white spaces. I worked for one of the largest uh, credit card companies in the world as a fraud investigator at one point, which was a lot of fun. Um, (laughs) I shouldn't say anymore. Uh, (laughs) But I I lived in LA for four years, came back, uh, and have been here ever since, and live here in Cincinnati on the west side with my wife and our beautiful dog. I should also mention that Homer lives like maybe two minutes from me, yes. so yeah. yeah, we're neighbors. <laughs> I'm on the west side now too. Perfect, west yeah, side, yeah. all right. Yeah. I'm sure some people listening don't like that, but. <laughs> really, how many east siders are listening to this? I, you know. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. <laughs> Cool. Well, you know, our topic today is about our experiences working in white spaces, and I'll let Homer kind of pose this first question because I know it means a lot to him, but 
Yeah. What, what does that mean to you, working in white spaces? Um, at a museum center, it's kind of interesting because we're in an education department, and um, we used to develop programs, and uh, programs usually revolved around things like natural history, science, all that's good and fine. Then you also get the historical aspect of it, and there's something, there's just like not really anything there for anything other than it's pretty much all whitewashed. Um, and I'm the only person of color in my department. Uh, and so the programming actually got taken away from our department, given to another group of people. They're also all white. And so it kind of just, unfortunately, like when you want to do something about it, you just kind of feel this pressure, and you also feel like there's these eyes on you every time you say something about it. Are you being a little bit too dramatic? Are you thinking too hard about it? Is it really an issue, or are you making it the issue? Mm. Um, so, yeah. The question is, white spaces? What does that mean? What, what does working in white spaces mean mm. to you? So, it's I would consider being anywhere outside of a space by my own people or other people of marginalized identities that is not like exclusively for that is being in a white space just because of um, the world and the society that we live in like if you think about it like the standard is white right. the standard right. is white right. and everything else is um, African hyphen American like like you know, you're Nate, you're this, you're this, you're everything. The standard is white, right? So you know, I work at a university, at a private Catholic university, and um, just the institution of higher education, right? Sure. It's it's. I mean, we live in a colony, right? This this country. So um, everything, I think, the paradigm, unless otherwise stated, uh, is in that that space and so um, you know I when I'm amongst like my own people culturally or at spiritually I feel at home when I'm outside of that space you automatically like your code switching you're you're thinking about your appearance like Sammy said earlier um, Am I going to be like the angry blank person, mm -hmm. or the one who's always going to like take issue with something? It's because we're not in a space that was initially established and meant to um, with us in mind. Uh, so yeah. I think that's just like the default is like we're surviving in the margins. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, us as, as Native individuals at least, like, really understand the impact of, of that uh, Western academics has on our, you know, us as an identity of a, as a people and, like, so many other marginalized communities as well. I think it was really interesting, Sammy, what you said, or the both of you, what you said about, you know, maybe you are working in a space that is pretty culturally diverse, but if it's led by an institution that is white-led, how, you know, it might be great that you're surrounded by people of color and like mm -hmm. people from different cultures and identities, but like if the gold standard within that organization or business is still like a white perspective, how that it's so much more difficult to change, you know, make a uh, structural change or systemic and even change. If, even if they're trying to do that change, they don't, I'm like, to be fair, they do want to make some changes mm -hmm. there. 
But as I told, I told them this, um, it's very easy to want to make the change, but there's no perspective. Sure. Um, it's very easy to want to change something, but you don't really understand what it is to actually make that change. And mm -hmm. I'm the, in a lot of these meetings, when it especially comes to the DAI, it's me and maybe two, three other people in the room. Yeah. And the rest of them are white faces and they do mean well, but that's not enough. Sure. And, you know, there is nuance, like there's a difference between DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion and actually decolonizing. Right. So, you know, for a lot of, like I work in student affairs and we do a lot of programs and retreats and all these things and diversity, equity, inclusion, like we have to get people of color, we have to get black students, we have to do this. And it's just like, for what? To traumatize them? Sure. Like, you know, yeah. like, so, um, you know, a lot of the programs where we're taking these students and we're teaching them about systemic forms of oppression, like racial injustice, economic injustice, prison industrial complex. It, these programs were created with like affluent white students in mind to open their minds up and to start questioning um, these systems. But when we have students who come from the margins who are survivors who come from marginalized identities and they're put in these programs they're traumatized or we have a lot of students that say well we spent all our time you know after we study these things for a whole semester during break we take and we take these students and I like take them to Chicago and where we embed ourselves in like communities in the south side of Chicago who are addressing these systemic forms of oppression and they're like, they all look like me and um, now all of my students, my fellow students are looking at me like a certain way, like, I, it, like there's this elephant in the room and it's just, you know, it's something that we talk about is that, well, our, our programs are, are not benefiting and helping everyone that comes to them. They're written for like white affluent students. How do we like think, rethink the whole structure, the whole design um, so that it is, is and, and it's something that we're still struggling with. Like we don't know how to do this and not traumatize and impact students who want to learn and, and go. So it's, it's you know, there's no answer for it right now, um, but it, it just shows that like what people call DEIs is not enough. It's, it's, it's the structure. Yeah. 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 I, I'm never uh, shy about being the angry native. I'll never say any because I've never been to India. Uh, <laughs> and that just shows the stupidity of the masses. Um, but I don't, I don't mind saying, no, no, this is wrong. We can't do this. You can't say that. Mm -hmm. uh, stop that. Um, but they charge so many times <laughs> over the years. And I'm fine with that. Um, I, I, the little saying, if you see something, say something, I always think, well, if I feel something, say something. Mm -hmm. Because that means more. Because if I'm feeling something, that means probably, you know, a thousand other people are feeling this. Or 10,000 or 100,000. But if it's important to one person, it's probably important to a larger number of people. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, like, 
I just transitioned into this role with Urban Native Collective, and so this is my first time working with other leaders who are also Native, a Native-run organization, and previously have spent so much time in white-led spaces and previously working in the outdoor industry. And um, there's something really interesting that happens with people that want to further outdoor recreation uh, when they want to work with Indigenous communities, with Native communities, because, you know, I think in a lot of ways they're well-meaning, but um, there is a lot there around taking Native communities for granted to achieve whatever they might want, land to recreate on, you know, whatever that might look like. And so, you know, I found myself in situations where I was tokenized or because I was the Native person who could align with their perspective. And thus they wanted to amplify the work that I was doing to prove that they were good allies to, you know, whatever that might be to look better with the tribes, you know, whatever it was that we were working on. And I had to step back and, and recognize that like I was sort of being used in a lot of ways. And I'm curious, like you, Sammy have mentioned that you are one of the only people of color, like in your group, in your program, um, whatever that looks like. I'm just curious, like, are there times when, I'm sure there are, that you felt tokenized or felt kind of really isolated? Yeah, uh, I'm the only, I'm the only person in my department at my level who is invited to these meetings, the AI meetings. Um, nobody else is. It's just me. Um, and I knew why. Um, and it got to the point where I felt like I was just kind of in those meetings to be in those meetings. Um, and then kind of like you, um, uh, I, uh, got my kofia, so I wore my kofia around my, uh, and scarf around my neck every single day. Uh, I started showing up and just started saying things in the meetings like, Hey, if you're saying Semitic, can you also include all Semitic people like the Arabs, the Assyrians, every, every Semitic person? Um, that's included in that. And uh, it got to the point where it kind of, they kind of looked at me as that person who was kind of taking issue with everything. Mm. But I also feel, I do, I have to admit, I do feel like some of them embraced it. Um, but I, I feel like I was put in that situation because they wanted to include somebody of color in that situation. Um, it just happened to be that I just kind of was just like, if you want me in here, I'm going to be in here and say things. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like they they want that. Yeah. So um, from my some of them do. Sure. Um, most I should say most of them. You don't you don't want to be too big of a problem. Right. <laughs> well, that's not true either. So <laughs> I feel you. There is, there's, that's not, that's, that is not. There, I've I've had I've had walks in the HR uh, department as well. Um, sometimes in defense of me because there have been things like there was there was one case for example where um, I was just getting lunch going down and I was wearing my kofia around my neck and there was a person who was looking at me um, and followed me down the stairs. And when I got down to the bottom of the stairs, I didn't hear footsteps anymore, so I turned around and he's just staring at me. Mm-hmm. So I go into the back offices and he goes back into um, HHC, it's the, um, the Holocaust Humanity Center there. And I guess he didn't know I worked there or whatever the case may be, but the person told the police, told the security, and told everybody that there was a person with hate clothing going into the back offices. Um, and so immediately, that was one of my trips to the HR office from there, saying, hey, I wear this every single day, um, part of my identity. And to their credit, they did, our CFO did kind of 
meet with their uh, CEO and it was kind of squashed um, in terms of like I tried to have lunch with the guy afterwards, ended up okay. But it's just, the guy followed me for wearing the kafia, And so it got to the point where I have to own that. I have to own who I am there. And it's just, if I'm just gonna be that quiet person that wears the kofia, people follow me around. You're just that quiet guy who doesn't look like anybody else there. And it's just, I want to be that person who causes problems. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, it, yeah. It's, it's, and see, I, I think causing problems should be in quotation marks because you're not. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, I mean, from their perspective. Yeah. 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 Right. Sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's causing discomfort yeah. is yeah. what it is. It's causing discomfort. It's causing me getting lunch and being <laughs> Yes. <laughs> not, not, you know, not to flip it over and the number of times they said, well, how do you feel about this? Meaning your whole demographic. And it's like, I can only answer for me, I, you know. <laughs> well, they were wondering why I was so calm. They were asking me. I was just like, yeah, I've heard it all. You know, I've seen a lot of things. My dad and my mom definitely had seen everything. Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, at this point, I was like, I can either talk to this person or I can just pretend it didn't happen. And I just I decided I wanted to talk to this person. Yeah. Um, and it worked out in that way, but it doesn't always work out that way. Right. Sometimes you get the the person who is is legitimately ignorant. Yeah. Which just means they don't know, and you can can take that opportunity to educate and exactly and let them know. You know, I'm just a human being like you. Um, but then on the other side, you get the stupid people, which means you can't refuse to learn, mm -hmm. who are just going to stay in their hatred and their bigotry and their stupidity. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, I think about you and how you, you know, want to have the conversation and you're, you're not unwilling to get people upset through that process and different things like that. I'm, you know, just curious from the both of you of like other ways that you found to work towards this idea of decolonizing the workplace, you know, given that we all sort of work within this very white system, whether we're, you know, in native communities or working for native organizations or other organizations led by um, communities of color at, at the leadership, like what ways have you found to begin that work towards decolonizing or even maybe even to step back a little bit um, of like feeling empowered just as of yourself mm -hmm. before we even get to like the how do we do the work because the work is so exhausting and like why do we have to do the work right but like how in what ways have you found space to feel empowered in your work so the aha moment for me and um, I'm, I'm going to reference my time in North Dakota, even though like it irks me when people like name drop Standing Rock. And um, but for me, uh, I was there on and off for about seven months, 2016 through 2017. And I'll never forget first driving up. I think it was August or September of 2016, and like immediately, like at that point. I think I was like myself and the two or three people I drove up with were like the non, like first like native, non-native like to Turtle Island people like there, like there were very few, um, if any at all. And when we first came up, it was like these signs that like said, um, don't bring your isms in here. Like our tradition and our ways are enough. And what that meant is because eventually the people came, the socialists, the feminists, 
the ists, the anarchists, the, 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 and we're like, we don't care. Like, keep that, that's not relevant to our historical context, to our cultural context, to our spiritual context. Like, keep that out. Our ways are enough. Because there were things that were happening that, like, were done in a, like, look, I'm on Lakota land, and I, I respect, and I'm, I'm going to do as I'm told. If I'm told to leave, I'm going to leave. I'm not there for my ego. I'm not there for myself. I'm there to, in solidarity, and to support, mm -hmm. like, the ask that is on the ground. So I'm bringing my body in service to whatever the call is. And, you know, there were things traditionally done around the fire, in the kitchens, who goes on the front line. Um, and people were, who, who are not, who are not aware of that or didn't want to, um, didn't come with an open mind or an open heart saying, well, that's sexist. Why are the women having to do this? And this, 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 this. And that's when they were like, this is our way. Like, you, you don't have to be here, you know? And I'm like, and you're, and the way it was said, because, you know, you go through an orientation is, we were told like, you are judging our ways and our traditions according to a paradigm and a context, a historical context that is not applicable to our ways and our people. So don't like use your, your history and this, Eurocent this Eurocentric context and history to judge our people, because according to that paradigm, we're never gonna measure up. Yeah. We're not calibrated. It's you're not calibrating it right. So I took that and I was like, holy crap, like that's, that's like me and my people. Mm -hmm. Like this whole time, this like, it's so funny because there are these studies that say Islamophobia, as bad as it always is, has kind of like decreased over the years with all demographics except for one demographic. And that one demographic is Muslim, with Muslim young adults. It's internalized Islamophobia. And it's because, and this is something that I, I like try to ram into my Muslim students is, dude, be proud of who you are unapologetically. Um, and, 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 and I will always say like never, ever, ever let like someone from the outside define and judge who you are. Cause all of the programs they want to do is like, they're falling over themselves to say, everyone's welcome, everyone's welcome. And they're like trying to make it so welcoming and hospitable that it, you no longer know it's like formal slums and it's lost sure. the yeah. culture and the spiritual. And I'm like, you guys, there is nothing wrong with being who you are. And like our people are people of hospitality. Like we will put out on the table like things that we don't even have, like miracles happen. And it's the same way with like, like you know. Um, and so I'm just like, just be yourselves. Just be like stand up straight. Like, but I will never be in a defensive position anymore, like anymore. And I learned that from my time um, in North Dakota. And like for one example, if I can give an example at work is, um, we on Fridays is our gathering day. It's our gathering day and it's when we come in and, and we pray and it's called Juma prayer. The word Friday in Arabic literally means, it comes from the same root word of Yajma'ah, Jama'ah, which means the gathering. Um, so Friday is like the gathering prayer where community comes together at least once a week, checks in with each other and prays like together in ceremony. And, um, and traditionally, traditionally, uh, the person who gives 
like the khutbah who speaks to the crowd um, is someone who is a male, traditionally, right? Uh, and there are different roles for different genders and like where people go and things, but traditionally it's this. So I remember, and but I write the sermons. So like at my university, like I'll write the sermons and I'll, or I'll give like writing workshops to help people like learn how to do that and how to story tell. But one time there were these two women, white women who were in my office and uh, one of them asked like, are you giving, they, are you giving the chutzpah? And I was like, no. And one white woman said to the other, uh, and it, it's a man, whatever, like that does it. And so, you know, to like, like second wave feminism, you know, like, haha, well, let me know when you finally get women, like women are finally able to give that and then I'll come and like attend your service. Like, and they both laughed and, um, I just like, you know, that that really got under my skin and irked me. It's just like, I, I realized that like, where you come from in your background, it's been a struggle, but like, it's not a struggle because we're not like, we're not seen as like not equal. Like this person has a role, this person has a role. Sure. And as a collective, as a society, we it's symbiotic and we support one another. It doesn't mean that I'm not in that role because I'm not good enough or yeah. I'm not allowed to. Like, it, and it's it's not even like, so don't judge me according to that paradigm. Um, but that's just like one example. Yeah. Or make assumptions yeah. about your culture and, you know, the ways based on this very modern, mm -hmm. maybe modern, but like, you know, from what all that they know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sammy, did you have? Yeah. Well, I um, occasionally, uh, especially for my friends, um, Cordell, he works at the uh, museum with me. We graduated together from NKU. Occasionally, I'll go speak to his classes and, like, kind of to what uh, Tala was saying here. Um, it's it's because I, I was I was speaking to this class about uh, the Arab experience post 9/11, uh, Arabs and Muslims, but primarily Arabs. Um, the reason why I changed it to mainly Arabs post 9/11 was because. Um, there's a lot of Arab Christians who are also being attacked post 9-11. Then you also have people who aren't even from that part of the world. They just kind of look a little brown and they got attacked. Mm -hmm. um, so the reason why I told it as an Arab story um, was because when people say Islamophobia is not racist, sure, it's about a religion, but you're looking for an Arab. Uh, that's traditionally how it, how it was post 9-11. Uh, Arabs are Pakistani or what have you, and but I was talking to this class, and they did ask some questions about, um, you know, the hijab and, like, choices and things like that. And I think somebody said something along the lines of, you know, I do know somebody who's, like, being forced to wear one. Their family is forced to wear one. And when we got down into it, I forgot exactly what was said, but this person was not being forced to wear it. Um, it was it was a choice, but also I kind of wanted to go into something that was more societal rather than anything else and just ask them the question of, Ask the women in the classroom, who here uh, has had relationships before? Raise their hand. And uh, who here has a guy uh, that has told you you can't text this person, you can't go out with this person, you can't do this with this person, you can't do this with this person? I was like, I guarantee you your friend with the hijab can hang out with whoever she wants to hang out with. She's not being controlled. You guys get controlled here all the time, and you see it a certain way. Mm. Uh, but when someone's wearing something on their head, they're enslaved. Right. They're making the assumption yeah. that 
this means what I think it means instead of understanding that, that person means. has to be like this. This person can't talk to any friends. This person can't go out. This person can't have fun because when someone does that to you, that's what it means. Sure. But to us, that's not what it is at all. Uh, Tala over here is like one of the most wild people. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, what, what, what happened to you outside of Walmart when uh, someone yelled at you and mom like through the car? Ooh, let's just put that and on you, the record on this podcast. I mean, there. It, it just it sounds like no, no, you know. No, yeah, no wait, go ahead. I'll um, tell go ahead. No, no. Wait. <laughs> No, like I'll, I'll I'll clap back. I'll clap back. Like there, I mean, we're talking. I've had like I can't even count how many times people have. Well, this one's fun. Um, like you know, after nine eleven, and and since, like I've had people in the street. I've been physically assaulted. I've been verbally. I've been like chased. I've been. I found like a tracking device in my car at one point. But um, yeah, like I remember one time walking. Well, it was, I was with mom, and it was outside of the. Public library, Cincinnati, and there are all these dudes hanging out at the bus stop. And, you know, I was just walking. He's like, hey. Like, this was, like, very recently after 9-11. And he was asking, like, where's Bin Laden? Where's Bin Laden? Like, we know you're hiding him. Like, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And uh, I just, like, couldn't take it. And I was like, yeah, I know where he is. And the whole block got quiet. Like, the whole street got quiet. And I was like, he's at your mama's house. You know, <laughs> and so like, but that happens a lot, yeah. right? Like people will say things and they don't expect for me to like clap back or to speak English or to not have an accent or which would be fine. But they look at me and they assume I'm going to sound a certain way. I'm going to be a certain way. I'm going to look a certain way and I'm going to take what they give. That wasn't not the story like, I was talking about, but that was the point I was getting. <laughs> <laughs> And I, you know, I'm, you know, each culture is not, um, each race is not a monolith, of course, but like, it's the idea that people on the outside are making a load of assumptions um, based on how someone's dressed, based on how someone's looks. And when that assumption is an external assumption um, on a people group that you're not a part of and don't understand that it's possible, very highly possible that there are misconceptions of Mm -hmm. how that community operates and so I mean I think that's exactly it right like when we exist and when we work in these white spaces there's already this set standard and assumptions about how we should be and how we should operate instead of you know allowing us to exist in the spaces that and as the people that we are and um, it, it makes you feel certain there's a someone in our youth program obviously youth I'm not going to say anything further about this person besides that they're Palestinian but they're, they're Palestinian, and like from what I hear about them all the time and what they tell me is that they want to be able to do things more like this. They don't want to like these certain foods like maglupa. They don't want to like certain like our traditional foods. And when I started talking to this person a little bit more, it basically got down to the uh, gist that um, it was kind of how I felt, especially post 9-11 um, uh, at that time, was everyone is saying that you're like this. And your parents get frustrated because they know that's not true. So they get really frustrated when you're trying not to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes you f- further distance yourself from it. And that's kind of what you, what this person wants to do. Um, and so it makes it seem like everything that they say about uh, certain things like that, like the whole culture is sexist, there's all this misogyny, they're yeah. backwards. 
the men are always angry all the time. <laughs> um, they internalize it. They, yeah, they internalize it, and they just they it's they have some sort of uh, I guess like trauma and truth in the back of their head, and they just don't want to be a certain way. They want to go with a group that makes themselves seem like they're superior to it. Right. Uh, and I kind of feel like that's what this person is doing, talking her out of it. But. Well, and then that can happen sometimes. I don't know, like, if y'all have a similar experience, but when we when we work in these spaces or when we're just in these spaces that are predominantly white, like, we feel almost this, it, we have this choice, right, of, like, be incredibly empowering and try to decolonize the workplace and put in all this work or literally, like, just assimilate. And, like, mm-hmm. like you said, like, I could just walk away yeah. from this guy and not cause trouble when he's, like, making fun of or making mention of the thing that you're wearing. Um, so we have choices. But unfortunately, like, the, the, the good and right choice of working towards decolonizing and working towards empowering ourselves and empowering others like us in the workplace requires so much emotional and physical labor on our part um and sometimes it's just like you just want to like not have to do it i mean me not walking away though had a good domino effect to this Mm, point to like how to decolonize the space is the cfo wants me to speak to uh, HHC is a separate organization, so mm-hmm. this is optional for them. But our organization as a museum center wants me to show up in the mornings and just teach everyone about the Palestinians, the Palestinian cause, Palestinian people, traditions, yeah. and just wants me to talk to everyone about them. Because uh, everyone who comes in, they see my kufiya. Like, I had someone go up and talk to the front desk when I was wearing my kufiya. never spoke to me. It was just like, his scarf represents genocide, uh, such and such and such like this. Um, and... My friend knew, knew that was false, but he didn't know how to respond to it. He doesn't know too much about it. So I think like part of the way that you can um, pull it back a little bit is just being seen and educating uh, the workspace in mass. But I had a unique opportunity uh, where someone tried to stick the police on me. So that was just a little bit different. Well, and your workplace saw you as an asset and not as a troublemaker in that they wanted you to contribute mm. versus terminate you, <laughs> yeah. you know? Cause like, right. You, you do all these things and you speak out and you, you try to like be progressive in the workplace. And then they feel like, Oh, well you're too much of a troublemaker or we don't feel comfortable enough to, you know, create and implement all this change. So we're going to let you go. Right? Oh, I, ha- I have been told by a couple of people there. Uh, like I said, they're not all on that same page. I've been told by a couple people there that I don't fit the dynamic mm-hmm. in a certain way. And have I thought about looking for a job elsewhere where there's more minorities or marginalized people? You know, to me, those kinds of things, like come what may, as long as, I'm not saying that's okay. Yeah. As somebody who like is, we're surviving yeah. the paradigm that we live in. Having someone at the place where I work, at least someone that for real will like stand by you. Well, like as a co-conspirator, as an ally, as all the things who you can go to and be like 100% like unfiltered, like be real with. Um, it's even a bonus if you have others who are like you, who get you that you don't have to explain yourself to, right? Um, but even like, so if I, I'm gonna share, for example, um, one of my roles at the university is I go and I speak to classes a lot. So a lot of the faculty, I'm not faculty, I'm staff, but a lot of faculty contact me to go and be like a guest speaker in their classes. And one time I'm speaking to like a PhD cohort. So these are doctoral students. 
and they want me to talk about like people like me and they're going to be in the healthcare field. They're going to be, uh, or I don't remember what program it was, but I give this whole spiel about my background being Muslim, going through the whole, um, occupational therapy and like what to look for, how to, you know, it just helping them. And when I'm done, there wasn't kind of this like back and forth with me and the students. They all waited for me to give my presentation and then like they saved the Q&A for the end. So I'm like, okay, who has questions? Any questions? Doctoral class, student raises her hand without a beat. And the first question I get, again, I'm speaking to doctoral students who are gonna be like uh, occupational therapists, like physical like therapists, right? Her first question was, yeah, can you tell me like why 9-11 happened? This was like two years ago. And the first thing, the first thing that like that came to mind when that question happened was, Tala, hold your face, hold your face. Because I can respond as like Tala would respond, but I'm also like an employee of the university and I'm a staff person and I'm a Muslim chaplain. So like I'm at work right now. So it was like Tala, hold your face. And I gave a pause because I was waiting for the faculty member and I was waiting for some of the students to like call this person out for like the ridiculousness. Mm -hmm. But then I looked around at the room and I noticed, God, no, they're all waiting for my answer. Mm -hmm. You know? And it was, I was so wrecked like emotionally. Like I had to like hold myself and uh, compartmentalize myself and not let myself feel in that moment, not let myself react but um, give like an answer. right? And the answer was like, I mean, I didn't like come from a defensive position. Like, well, actually, I'm like, no, like, it was like, my question was like, I don't know, once you ask the US government who funded the Taliban, who like, whatever, it doesn't matter. Sure, but not you. Like, yeah, <laughs> right, like, what do I have to do with it? Um, uh, but, you know, I let my boss know like that night, it was an evening class. And I was like, I'm not coming into work tomorrow. Like for real, I was so affected at like not being able to react and then looking around, looking for support and not getting it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get out of bed the next morning. Yeah. yeah. It's like, I'm not, I can't, you know? So there are times like that when the boss gets it, who was like, I go and talk to her. I, I things happen that are problematic and I like rail I rail on everybody in my department and there like there's nobody in my department that I feel like I can't go to about things but having said that as a Palestinian I feel that I am not allowed in in a lot of spaces to be who I am right so for example I mean one is it not right but Palestine is under like colonization under occupation under apartheid under whatever Um, in the holy month of Ramadan, um, during like Easter, like all these things in the Holy Land right now, and homes are getting raided, people are disappearing, people are getting shot, holy places are being like bombed and shot at. And I literally have family, like relatives that have been killed by settler colonialists that have been, uh, their bodies have been brutalized to the point that they were not recognizable when they found them on the side of the road and they had like cigarette butt like burns like after they were you know um all like our harvest has been burned so all these things and I'm, I'm supposed to show up and still go to work right or I have people that like 
they feel uncomfortable with me talking about it because they quote unquote don't know enough about the issue to like really like right. agree or whatever. And I'm just like, since when is that an ex- is, a, is an excuse, right? So like maybe you might learn something if we talk. Yeah. About it. Yeah. Since when has that been an excuse? Um, and you know, so. Like there are still parts that because um, Americans are so in general, like not as informed because the United States, because of foreign policy and economics, like the United States media, like pushes like one story and one angle um, that if you're not looking, you're not gonna know. And so like, because of that, I have to like struggle in silence and not be myself and not get support and like, show up, like wake up having panic attacks, but like go to work and not really be able to talk about it because it makes people feel uncomfortable. So. Yeah, and I think you speak to such an important reason why having those people, right? Like your person at work or whoever that is, like that ally in the workplace is so important because there's no answer to this. There's no answer to like, well, how do we solve this problem of how to make white spaces less white? Because that's not going to happen. But like you speak to real real life, um, you know, you speak real life examples of things that I think so many of us experience in different ways. And like there's no solution to how we feel more comfortable working in these white spaces outside of like, you know, burning them down or whatever. But that's dramatic. Um, but like, you know, that these problems are very real and things that we all have to experience walking into various workplaces or elsewhere, living in this country, living in this society um, because of settler colonialism, because of the things of this country's past and how it is so crucial to find community, Mm -hmm. right? And connect and feel empowered um, to just keep going. Right, like you got back up and you went to work and like something made you feel empowered. And a lot of times that's because of your own emotional labor that you're expending mm-hmm. to like show up and get paid and like do all this stuff. But like, you know, I think sometimes like finding somebody and having that community can like help you get up the next day and like continue that really hard work. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the uh, a key, and I, 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 it's not going to happen in my lifetime, um, is education in this country. Mm-hmm. If we change the education system to to teach young people actual history and actual events and what this country has done to itself mm-hmm. as well as other countries, you know, it's, it's honestly a cause and effect. You know, anything you do comes back to you tenfold. It's going to happen, you know. It's, and, and there's a great saying, I think it's Socrates, said those who don't study history are doomed, doomed to repeat it. And, and we're not studying history. Yeah. We're barely studying anything, really. Um, <laughs> that's sad. Uh, but it's, it, I think when we talk about decolonization, or as I spoke to you earlier today, you know, uh, indigenizing, uh, the space we live in, uh, we have to work toward making the education system work for our young because we won't be here. You know, if, it, if it's going to change, they're going to do it. And, and we have to 
write our congressmen, write our senators, write the president, uh, regardless who's in office. Um, my congressman gets an email from me at least once a month, um, and I'm sure it goes right in the delete bin. <laughs> <laughs> Trash. <laughs> but there's something to delete. Yes, yeah. there's something to delete. Um, but that's, I think that's how we take responsibility for the generations that are coming after us, because we can do that. You know, I have, uh, I don't have any children of my own, but I have nieces and nephews, and they have children, and, and I talk to them, you know, and tell them stories that my grandmother told me, that her grandmother told her, and, and let her know, let them know what's going on, and, and what our community has done, and what it's been through, and the, the uh, advances it's made, and the, the contributions. And uh, I think that's important. We have to get that taught in our schools every day, every year. There's something I also do is I do edit some school curriculums myself, and the things that are actually in a lot of these books is just, it's it's not just bad, it's also just it's strange, because the way that we would grade it is also on perspective. Uh, one of the examples I'll give is uh, King, King James War, is what they call it. Uh, but you're reading throughout this entire chapter of how they start off with these 72 villages, and they eventually got down to three. And then they said the indigenous people declared war finally after that. But from a perspective, and but it's never taught that way, but to edit it, I edit it from the perspective of did he declare war or when he lost over 70 villages, did he finally figure out that he was already at war? Yeah. Uh, why does it always have to be the indigenous people who start the wars? Sure. And they never talked about his family being burned, his family being dismembered. Mm -hmm. Uh, the enslavements, why the indigenous people knew English, which is why they were enslaved. Yeah. But that's the stuff that are in the books right now. All that stuff is not in there. No. And they didn't mention that these peoples are, are still fairly recognized in there today. They just kind of killed them off in the book. Yeah, it's, I mean, I see so much, you know, connection here of like educating our youth and like you working on just that. And like there's so many problematic things within these textbooks and it's just so important that we also really stand by that and uh, understand that like education and educating um, is such a huge component of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I wanna thank you both so much yes. for um, joining us in this conversation during our first live episode here at the Playhouse. Um, we're just very grateful for your conversation. So thank you both so much, yeah, thanks. Thank you. This pilot episode of Life on the Margins, an Urban Native Experience, was brought to you in partnership with the Cincinnati Playhouse. We're super grateful for our partnership with the Playhouse. They've allowed us a beautiful space to record our live episodes. And special thanks to all of our donors, community partners, and supporters. We couldn't do our work without you. And if you'd like to become a supporter of our podcast or the work of our organization, you can head over to gcnativeamericancoalition.com and donate to support us. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Urban Native Collective. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Until next time, everyone. Take care. <laughs>